church this morning. If you would, go ahead and turn your Bible to 1 Peter as we're going to get back into our, our study. In 1 Peter, we're going to read the text together, pray, ask God to refocus our hearts and minds, bring us back to these moments that we were engaging with Peter in, in 1 Peter, see what it is he has for us. So 1 Peter, we're going to pick up in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. First Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the back table or it'll be on the screen for you. I encourage you to read along with me as we engage with God's Word this morning. Verse 13 <clears throat> says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reasons for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good that should be God's will than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you. God, we just ask this morning that you would just speak to us through the text. God, bring our focus and our mindsets back to this place that we were in before when we were engaging with Peter and First Peter, God, about a culture who is resistant to us, God, and most of all, a culture who is resistant to the truths of your word. God, continue to teach us and to show us what it means to navigate that space, God, and still be pursuing you and being and desiring to be an impact for you and your kingdom. God, how can we do that? And what does that look like in our lives, Father? God, I pray you begin to reveal that to us this morning, God, and re just reignite the passion that we have for you and your work. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' holy name. So church, 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're at. And remember this study that we're going through right now, we've called the outsiders, Christian life in a resistant culture. Because as Peter is writing, remember that Peter is writing to a group of Christians in Rome who are under oppression from the emperor at the time, Nero, who has accused the Christians of setting fire, a major fire in Rome. You can look this up in history books. And Nero used this opportunity to blame it on Christians to kind of bring about kind of an oppression of the Christian faith because he was afraid of the growth and the magnitude at which this message was spreading. And so Nero's desire was if we can sniff this out and, 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 and kind of dampen this fire, this flame that is as you know, metaphorical flame of the Christian faith that is spreading throughout Rome, maybe its influence will be no longer. And then you know, we can continue to push our agenda, which we stand here thousands of years after the fact, and the truths of God still stand. But the reality of the cultural impact around this is still very much the same. That we've said throughout this series that very much like uh, Peter and those interacting in this space, we're very much outsiders right now. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you, I pray that you'll understand that being on the sense outside of the culture is exactly where God wants us to be. 
because the influence we want for ourselves is not the influence of the culture, but we want the influence of Christ in our lives and what that means in regards to His truths and what He has for us. And so, you know, last week, uh, la- not last week, last time we spoke, just to kind of remind us about where we were, uh, this, this, the kind of the sermon breakdown was this, that how we think, live, and why we do it all defines the depth of our faith and the reach of our influence. Okay, And so, moving into this portion of 1 Peter chapter 3, we begin to see Peter be a lot more specific on how we continue to engage the culture. How do we still have influence in the culture when that culture is against us, right? Because by nature, and a lot of us were the very same before Christ came into our lives and began to restructure us, by nature, human beings are resistant to the gospel. By nature, we are not gravitating towards the gospel. By nature, we do not have faith of our own to want what God has for us. I mean, the Bible is very clear all throughout the book of Romans even, where it says that that we don't want good by nature. We don't want, none wants God, none seeks after God, none hungers for God by nature. And so as we come to know Christ, there has to be this element from within us as Christians that step into that space and engage with those because we know that faith comes by hearing, by hearing of the Word of God and the Word of God is the Gospel of God and what God is doing and wants to do among His people. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, we kind of see... Peter is setting this expectation of faithful obedience for Christians. Okay, he's setting, and this whole book is written to believers. You and me and all of us this morning. God has written to us through this to a call of faithful obedience. And what we'll see this morning is that it's not this call for godly approval. That's not what God is calling us to. Not to this sense of godly approval, but for a defensive preparation in our spiritual journey. A defensive preparation. And so when you hear me say that, I'm not saying on the defensive to where we're being aggressive towards everyone. We're ready to bite everybody's head off because they disagree with us. That's not what I'm saying. And Paul, Peter, there it is. There's the, the first Paul of the back to the series. Peter is being very clear on how we do that. And we'll see some, some ways at which we navigate that as we move forward. But... You know, what I really think, kind of the subtitle this morning, if I had to kind of give an idea about what the subtext of this morning is, it's the idea of being, inf- being an influence during resistance. How do we as Christians be an influence in the midst of resistance, okay? And there's two major things that I think revolve around this idea of preparation. This idea of preparation within our hearts, within our spiritual lives, for us as parents, as husbands, as wives, as employees, as employers, as grandparents, you know, how do we be influencers in the sense of for the gospel? And I think it all revolves around the idea of preparation. So there's two avenues of preparation that I want us to lean into this morning that I believe the text speaks to. And so the first one is this, preparation for opposition. I think this is very important for a Christian that we be in a mindset where we're in preparation for opposition. That we, and we constantly communicate this, constantly communicate this because sometimes I think that the Christian life is kind of sugar-coated where it's like once you become a Christian, everyone's going to love you and it's going to be great and, and, and you're going to be like one of the, the cool kids at the table, right? As we've talked about over and over and over again in this series and that your friends and family are just going to embrace it because it's, you know, it's love and it's peace and it's this and it's that. But the reality is biblical Christianity, like we've said in the beginning, is not the cool kids at the table. 
Biblical Christianity comes with the expectation of opposition. The Bible has told us that from the very beginning. That, I mean, in the garden, what did they meet? Instantly, opposition to the truths of God. Did God really tell you you couldn't eat of the fruit off that tree? Did God really say that? Is God withholding something from you? It's resistance. It's opposition. And so the first thing this morning for us as Christians to properly engage the culture around us is to have a mindset of preparation for opposition. And I love how Peter starts here in verse 13. He says this. He says, Now who is there to harm you? But get this. If you are zealous for what is good. If you are zealous for what is good. And so what does this word zealous mean? We've talked about it before, but the word zealous is just another way of saying passionate. So basically what he's saying is, who is there to harm you if you are passionate for what is good? And so I think the first place that we need to be in our mindset as Christians to engage with, the, with ourselves, with the non-believers or believers around us who are attempting to disciple, is to evaluate our passions. Evaluate our passions, because if we're honest, if we would take a true kind of evaluation of our lives, what are our passions to do? The things that we love, the things that we elicit value to, the things that we hold tightly to. Our passions create paths in our lives, right? Our passions dictate the roads at which we take. Our passions dictate the steps at which we make within the context of our lives. Our passions provide paths. And so if our passions are not driving us to God, then those paths are going to be crooked. Remember Proverbs talk about the, the crooked paths that we take or these, these, these winding paths that we take. And so in preparing for the opposition to come against us, we have to be in this mindset where we begin to evaluate our passions because our passions are going to provide the paths at which we walk in our lives. And as Christians, if those passions aren't being driven by God, then those paths will not lead us to what God has for us. You know, C.S. Lewis said this, he said, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from Himself because there is no such thing. There is no such thing as peace apart from God. And so for a lot of us, our passions are this attempt to find peace, right? Our passions are these as attempts to find joy, to find value, to find truth. And so if our passions are not leading us to God or not being led by God, then those paths will never truly lead us to peace. They'll never truly lead us to value. They'll never truly lead us to purpose. They'll never truly lead us to anything that we truly seek within our hearts in this life. And so preparing for this opposition requires us to evaluate our passions. Asaph writes in Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26, he says this, one of my favorite Psalms. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion forever. I love that he says that there's this sense of confidence where Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are passionate or zealous for what is good? And so we can almost think about the opposite. Kind of the opposite statement of that would maybe be said like this. Everyone can harm you if you're passionate for what is bad, right? Because we're setting ourselves up to be hurt. We're setting ourselves up to be led into these places and spaces at which we're disappointed. You know, because what we're passionately pursuing, it will determine. 
It will determine how we react, how we respond, how we navigate these spaces in life because the things we're passionate about will lead us down paths. And so, you know, he's telling us, he says, you know, if you're passionate about what is good, and when the Bible speaks of what is good, it's speaking about what is godly or what is of God. And so he says that, you know, there's a confidence that comes when our passions are being driven by, by God and towards God where he says, you know, who is there that can harm you? In preparing for the opposition. I mean, who can stand against you if you are in God? But too often when our passions aren't being driven in that direction, we do feel the harm. We do feel the hurt. We do feel the disappointment. We do feel just off-centered because the passionate drive within the context of our life isn't God. But it's something else. It's our job. You know, it's some type of uh, comfort level. It's some type of, maybe it's even, you know, the, 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 the drive and the passion of our life is, is, is you know, uh, these things, you know, substances or whatever it might be. We're seeking after these, these pieces in our life, but what God is calling us to is to be pursuing these passionate things that which are of God and that are good. And then in verse 14, he says this. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And so what he's telling us is that in your pursuits of good, there's a promise or there's, there's a, a guarantee that there may be opposition. So he's telling us, don't be surprised when the opposition comes. Don't be surprised when there's suffering to be had. But when that suffering is for the sake of righteousness, and when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about everything that is right by God's standards, everything that is good. And remember, there is no righteousness from within ourselves, that it's only by Christ's righteousness that we live, and the pursuits that we have are to continue to pursue the righteousness of God, and not our own, not our own desires, not our own values, not our own decisions, but it's the passionate pursuit of God's righteousness. And so when he says this, he says, you will be blessed. He said, this is, this is revealing to us a promise of God's faithfulness. And I love how he says this, if you should suffer for righteousness sake. Because a lot of times, even as Christians, we can find ourselves suffering for selfishness sake. Right? We can, we can be navigating these spaces where we're doing what we want. We're, we're navigating by our will. We're navigating by our desires, by what makes us comfortable, what makes me happy. And then, so if we experience suffering in, this, in the space of self-righteousness or selfishness, then we're not guaranteed blessings. We're not guaranteed to experience the blessings that God has for us. The only place at which we can experience the blessings at which God has for us is when we are suffering for what? For righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. And so, and when we see that in other places in the Bible, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's a very specific place at which we feel that persecution, oppression, or resistance where we get the blessing. And that's when we're pursuing or being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James chapter 1, verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which, is, which God has promised to those who love Him. And those who love Him are pursuing righteousness. Pursuing what God wants. Pursuing what God has. Pursuing who God is. Because when we are pursuing the things of God, 
we will meet opposition. We, mil- we will meet resistance. And sometimes that resistance is from far outside of ourselves. You know, the people we interact with at work, uh, you know, kind of coming in, maybe friends that we interact with on a day-to-day. But maybe even closer than that, maybe even family, or maybe even closer than that, maybe even our children, maybe even our spouses. There are these places at which that resistance and opposition may come. And it may bring about these feelings of persecution or suffering in the midst of those relational contexts. But it's the expectation that we need to understand. Because to suffer for righteousness' sake reminds us, when we suffer for the, for the sake of the gospel, not to make us feel better about ourselves, because I feel like a lot of people wear suffering or oppression as like a badge of honor. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying for us as Christians, when we fight for the gospel, when we fight for truth, when we stand firm on the, the, the foundation at which Christ has laid for us, and then we suffer relationally, emotionally, or physically in the context of that because of our faith, it reminds us of something that we have to always remember. Is that by our new birth, if you're a Christian this morning, by your new birth, you are born into a new kingdom, which means that you are born in opposition to this world. You are born an enemy. The Bible calls us an exile. You are born as a sojourner or a pilgrim. That we're not meant for this place anymore in the sense of our eternity. And so by birth... When we suffer for righteousness' sake, when we meet opposition for the sake of the gospel, it reminds us that we're an enemy of the world. And the Bible tells us, Jesus said, it says, they hate you because they first hated me. And so expect it. You know, I read this quote this week and I thought it was just so, so, so accurate. It says, not to be hated by the world, to be loved and flattered and caressed by the world is one of the most terrible positions in which a Christian can find him or herself. And then the quote is the question that they ask themselves is this, What bad thing have I done, asked the ancient sage, that he should speak well of me? So basically saying, what bad things have I done that the world would speak well of me? That the world would embrace me? That the world would agree with me on everything? You know, that the world would love me? That the world would love me to be around? That the world would love what I have to say? That the world would love what I say I stand for? Church, the reality is that those two things don't match up. The world's not going to love everything about what we believe in. The world may like the idea of some of the things that we do or some of the things we say or some of the things we believe in, but foundationally, they will hate it because foundationally it's built on Christ and Him crucified and according to His standards, according to His gospel, according to His faithfulness and not my own or not by the world's system. And so because of that, there's an expectation that we will not be embraced by the world. Like I said, they may like the idea of some of the things we say or do, but they won't like the foundational makeup of what we say we stand for and what we live for. And so what does he say in verse 14? He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. When we evaluate our passions and we begin to get back on track with seeking after God in our personal lives, in our worship life, in our prayer life, what it does is it brings us into this place of confidence where we can stand confidently and where Peter says he's telling these people that are standing under oppression, where they're standing at the brink of disaster and death and martyrdom. He says, have no fear nor be troubled because of what? Because if you're seeking good and righteousness sake, then God will bless you and be with you. The blessings of God always come with the presence of God. 
So he guarantees the presence of God in your space of suffering and of uncertainty and of doubt. He says God is there. That we can't allow fear or the response of those around us to keep us from faithful pursuits of the passionate pursuit of who God is. Because God is drawing us into that. And so not only is there a, a sense of, as we kind of are trying to get in this space of being influential, and remember this is all evaluating our passions in preparation for opposition. It isn't to run away from the fight, but it's preparing us to stand in the fight. To stand in that space with friends, family, co-workers, sons, daughters, husbands, wives that don't believe or are resistant to the faith. That we stand in the gap in those situations and begin to engage it. That's what we're preparing for. And so then the second thing this morning, first thing is preparation for opposition. The second thing is this, preparation for proving. Preparation for proving. Now who who and what are we proving to? For for the, the thing we need to understand is I'm not talking about us proving anything to God. But what I am saying is that there's a proving that we do in front of people. And not only that, but there's a proving that we do to ourselves. That we desperately need. That we desperately need. So the second thing is preparation for proving. And we see here in verse uh, 15. So in verse 14 he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then he says this, But in your hearts, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So listen, maybe you've heard this verse before, but this is a statement that many of us do not like. You know, we, we hear, we've heard this said maybe time and time again. If you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard this verse preached a hundred times. But there's something about that word, always. That word, always, that frightens us. There's something about that word always being prepared to make a defense. And I love this phrase because if you know anything about this phrase, this phrase, make a defense, it's where uh, it comes from the word apologia and it's from the word where we get the idea of apologetics. And if you've ever heard of apologetics, it's, it's, a, it's a method at which you study and prepare to basically make defense or have conversation about the defense for your faith, why you believe what you believe. And so what do we see here is that Peter is telling us as Christians... We have got to be at this place. So part of our preparation is being able to prove, not in a sense, because I've said time and time again, if I can talk somebody into something with smooth talk, somebody else can talk them out of it. I'm not talking about a sales pitch. And we've said that before. The Christian life, we said it last week when we were talking about Paul being a witness of the gospel, a testimony of the gospel, that it's not about a sales pitch to people, but it's about approving. That what we believe is important enough to us that we would want to even remotely begin to make a defense for why we believe in what we believe. You know, the problem with most Christians is we have zero idea why we believe anything about what we believe. And so the moment that any kind of opposition or resistance comes, we clam up and we clench up. And then so for a lot of us, we would just rather avoid those conversations because we're not comfortable to begin to engage in them at all. And number one, we need to know, and I'm saying all this, no, I'm not saying any of us needs to have all the answers. Because listen, I don't have all the answers. There are several times throughout my ministry where I've said, you know what, I'm not sure. But give me a day or two and I'm going I'm to engage with you with a potential answer or a potential discussion about what that may be. But it's about that word always. 
that makes us nervous. Because what it insinuates is it's encouraging us to always be ready. Always be ready to be what? To make a defense. And so what does that mean? That means we need to always be ready for number one, to be seen. And number two, to be heard about our faith. Be seen and to be heard. But because what that brings with it, when he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. It brings about this idea of accountability. And one of the things that we hate is accountability. We hate accountability, right? You hate when your supervisor, your boss comes up to you and begins to question you about something you were supposed to do or you've already done. Because you instantly think in your mind, well, what, you didn't think I already did that? Right? You, you, you don't think that I'm smart enough to do it or that I would have already done it? And then you think to yourself, no, I haven't done it yet, but he doesn't know that. I'll take care of that later, right? We hate the idea of accountability because it shines light on us. It, 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 it requires us to be mindful of what we're doing and what we're saying. And so for a lot of us, I think a lot of us in our Christian life, we begin to, because any sense of accountability, what we tend to do is we tend to run away from that. And running away from that requires us, or what it pushes us to do, is it wants us to kind of run away into this anonymous space. Where, for many people as Christians, we want to live in this space where people don't really know what I believe, or how I believe, or how I live, or what I stand for, or whatever it might be. We'd rather live in this place of, anim- uh, you know, un- uh, you're not uh, anonymous space of, of darkness. You know, and, and I love uh, Martin Luther said this when he was asked about what is the essence of Christianity? Like what is, what if you could sum up Christianity in one thing, what would it be? You know, and so hundreds of years ago, Martin Luther said this and, 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 and he said it in Latin initially. He said this phrase, he said, Coram Deo. Coram Deo. He says this phrase sums up the essence and the core uh, of what it means to be a Christian and the life of a Christian. And so the phrase Coram Deo, it means this. Before the face of God. Before the face of God. And so what he's saying here is the essence of the Christian life is to live before the face of God. Now that seems crazy because it's like, well, if the God of the universe is omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient and all those things, then how could there be a time at which I'm not living before the face of God? Well, it's not in a sense of that we're not physically living before the face of God, but spiritually, intentionally, personally, emotionally, are we choosing to live in a mindset and a place at which we are living actively before the face of God that we have this knowledge this understanding we live our life day to day that I'm acknowledging today I'm waking up and living before the face of God that we are living all of all of our life in the presence of God under the authority of God to honor and glory to the honor and glory of God Because in a lot of ways, in our life, we live as if we're not living before the face of God because it removes this sense of accountability, right? If I can just remove that from my mind, I can forget. I can forget that I live in the face of God. And so it's more of a mental space, a mindset in which we live. You know, and I love in Luke 15, I never really noticed this before, but then reading this text uh, in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, a very familiar passage of Scripture that you've heard time and time again if you've been in church long enough. But, you know, right after... 
after the son goes to the father and he says that I want all my inheritance. I want everything that's, that's owed to me. I want all that is mine. You know, this very uh, this self-centeredness, this self-righteousness that he brings to the table. He goes to the loving, caring father and he says, I want everything that's mine. Give me my inheritance now. So what this father does, he gives him everything. Well, then right after that, right after that, it says this in verse 13 of Luke 15. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. So what's significant about that? The son traveling off to a far country is that he was going to a place where no one would know him, where no one would see him. There would be no accountability. Listen, the life we live we can, we, can, we can begin to acknowledge that there's opposition even from us if our desires in our Christian life is to not ever be seen. You know, I hear comments all the time, well, I just want to go to a church where I can just sit in the back, come and go, no one notices me, no one says anything to me, I just do my thing and I leave. That is not a far cry from the journey at which the prodigal son took when it says he took everything in a sinful rebellion that was his, took it all and went to a far off country. Because there would be nobody there that would say, hey, you're that son that took his inheritance early and then abandoned his family, right? You're that son that wanted to go and live his own way, right? Or run into his dad and have that awkward uh, situation where he sees his father and he's reminded about the uncomfortable nature of their relationship at this time. No, he said that he traveled to a far off country because he didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to have to deal with it. He didn't want to be challenged. He didn't want to be tested. He didn't want to have to answer for anything. He didn't want to have to be held accountable to anything that he was before or anything that he's doing. He wanted to live anonymous. And so Peter is telling the people here, be ready, always prepare to make a defense. Be ready to be seen. Be ready to be noticed. Live our Christian life in a place where we want to be seen. Where we want to be ready to make known who it is God is and what He's doing. Listen, the light of God is uncomfortable because you know what it does? It not only shines a light on where we should go, but it shines a light on where we've been. It shines a light on the life we're living and it tells us there's things that we've left behind that have broken us and have broken other people and it shines a light on where we are and it says there are things you're doing now that are not leading us towards God, that are not discipling our kids and our family and our spouses in a proper way and are not leading us in the direction we should go. But you know what it also does is it shines a light on, the, on, on our path at our feet to show us the direction at which God is beckoning us towards. He's saying, come. He's saying, yes, these are the things you've done. Yes, these are the things that you are. But this is the way that you're going. That when you pursue God, He's inviting us into this direction because of the light of God. We can't be, and in, 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 in it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable space to be, but we can't be afraid of what the light of God reveals to us because we have to know and understand that anything God reveals to us, He intends to cover up in forgiveness. Anything about our past, anything about our present that is sinful or broken, He intends to uncover it to deal with it, to cover it up and leave it behind so we begin to live and pursue the righteousness and the goodness at which He has invited us to. C.S. Lewis, another quote from him, he says this, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
So it's in this preparation for proving to other people that we not be afraid to be seen. That we would not be afraid to be seen. And then he continues on and he kind of begins to let us know how we go about that. And we'll be finishing up here in just a second. But he tells us how to go about that. He says, yet, in making a defense, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think this is very hard for us. Because for one, when people disagree with us, we get very defensive in a negative way, right? When people challenge us, we get nervous and very defensive in a negative way. And what is the first thing that typically goes out of the window when someone disagrees with us or we get defensive? I wouldn't say it's so much the gentleness, but I think it's respect. We quickly move to the space where we want to disrespect people. Disrespect who they are, disrespect what they believe, disrespect what they think, you know. And so what we begin to not take into consideration is the culture around them that has shaped them to be who they are. And so we think that we're disrespecting that, but just like you and me, when our identity is tied to our, what we've grabbed onto, and for people who are not believers, they've grabbed onto an identity that is not of God, they've grabbed onto the identity of what their environment has shaped them to be, when we disrespect them, we believe we're disrespecting that. But because their identity is tied to that, we've disrespected them. And I truly believe this, that when we withhold respect, we remove our influence. When we withhold respect, we remove our influence. Everyone deserves respect. Everyone deserves respect. The most wicked human being on earth deserves respect. Because why? For one, they're created in the image of God. Number two, because our desire is to win their hearts for Christ. And the moment we remove respect, we remove our influence. Proverbs 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Bible speaks a lot about our tongue and controlling it and that we are never to speak from emotion and anger and let things pour out of our mouth. But we are meant to ponder. We are meant to think. We are meant to use our words diligently. And when we do that, I believe we retain respect. Colossians 4, 6, it says, Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Listen, Seasoned with salt, it communicates this idea of not only words that are preserved, words that can last, words that will endure, but also words that have been prepared. Words that have been thought about. Words that have been seasoned. That have been prepared in a way that you're ready to give, that you know how to answer in a way that is not emotional or angry. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Patiently enduring evil. And so what is evil? The Bible defines evil as this. I think we always have a lot of different definitions of what evil is. But honestly, evil is anything that chooses to live without God. And that, that's a lot of different ways that that looks. But ultimately, evil is defined by choosing to live on our own and live without God. That is evil. You know, the... the uh, Jeremiah talks about it. He says that they've done evil in a sense that they build, they've hewed out their, themselves cisterns to collect water. But that was evil. Because what they're doing is they're dependent on themselves and their own works and the works of their own hands. 
And so, you know, we view evil as murder and all these other things, but ultimately, evil is anything that chooses to live on its own and live without God. And so he says, enduring evil and correcting, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them. And this is our hope, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. In 2 Timothy 2.26, he says, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And I think this is what we have to remember. Is that the unbeliever, the, the, the person, man or woman, living in opposition, rebellion or resistance to God, they are captured. They are captured. They are imprisoned by the enemy. They have been ensnared by the works of the devil. They are being weighed down by their sin. They are being entrapped by the guilt and the shame and the, 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 the accusations of the devil. Remember what, what, uh, what Revelations calls uh, the, uh, the, the devil and what Job calls the devil, calls him the accuser. That's what the enemy does to us. He accuses us. And so the person living in rebellion to God or living in opposition to God... They're captured. They're captured by the enemy. And so for us, we are preparing for proving. We are preparing to step into these spaces with gentleness and respect to release people from the snares and the entrapment of the devil and his accusations. And so not only is the proving for other people, but then the second thing is this last thing that the proving would be for us. That we need to be proved to ourselves. In verse 16 it says this, having a good conscience. When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I think one of the greatest provings we need to do in our Christian life is to prove something to ourselves. Prove to ourselves who God is. Prove to ourselves what God is doing. Prove to ourselves what the action of salvation and justification and sanctification mean that God has forgiven me. That God has given me a direction. That God has given me a power. That God has given me a, a purpose in His kingdom work. And it's within the context of that proving that where He says here that there's slander, that there's revile, that there's all these things that are coming against you. But because you have a good conscience. Why do you have a good conscience because of this because you have a reason for your hope because you understand what it is that you're doing because you're zealously passionately pursuing what is good and because of all of those things now you can stand with a good conscience and it doesn't matter who slanders you it doesn't matter who tries to bring shame upon you it doesn't matter any of those things because you have a good conscience your internal existence listen the conscience seems so very not Christian I think we think of conscience like oh well that's the Holy Spirit but in reality this is something separate from the Holy Spirit there's something within our soul there's something within us that brings us peace there's something within us in, in, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit that helps Helps us have confidence in who God is and what God has done. So when the slander, when the revile come, that we have a direction and a passion that we're pursuing in our lives, that we can stand in confidence because our behavior is in Christ. And when Christ is on my side, He will put all of the slander, all the reviling to shame. So because of that, we can stand in confidence. Because of that. But what we need is we need approving. We need approving. 
We need to be pursuing God. We need to be practicing this story of redemption. We need to be worshiping. We need to be praying. We need to be reading. We need to be reminding ourselves. Ultimately, we need to evaluate our passions because these things will dictate our conscience and how we engage with these things. So listen, if we don't have a good conscience, then when the slander and the revile come, we will believe it. We will give in to it. We will back down from the fight. We will back down from the defense. But what he's invited us to is to not only prove to others by being ready to be seen, but prove to ourselves. Let's, let's let ourselves be convinced. Let's let ourselves be convinced about what he's doing and what's been done. And so as the worship team comes and as we end with this time of worship, I want to end on this last verse because I think it's very important for us. Verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing bad. The reality is, and we've, we've, there's, there's no, no doubt about it, this life brings about suffering in some aspect on different levels, from the smallest to the greatest level. There is suffering to be experienced. And so what he's telling us, is he tells us with this expectation of suffering, with this expectation that there is suffering to be had, that I would rather suffer, experience hardships, experience difficulties, experience the pressing of the world around me while seeking what is good, than I would to experience that same type of suffering but be pursuing what is bad. Because of what? Because the bad doesn't come with blessing. The pursuit of good comes with the blessings of God. The pursuit of good comes with the confidence that comes by having a good conscience, by knowing what God is doing, what He has done, and what He plans to do. That in the midst of that, that the enemy can't take anything away from me in that. That when I suffer for good's sake, when I suffer, when my life as a father is difficult because I'm a Christian, when my life as an employee is difficult because, because I'm a Christian, when my life as a husband is difficult because I'm a Christian, I'm pursuing the things Christ has for me, that it is better to find difficulty in suffering that way than it is to be distant from God, to be pursuing lesser things, to be giving myself over to lesser things because it's in the midst of the pursuit of God's goodness that I'll find blessing, that I'll find that my great God is present with me, that He's present in my pain, He's present in my uncertainty, He's present in the doubts, He's present in the fear, He's present in all those things when my ultimate pursuit is as good. Now listen, does that mean that we don't stumble? No, Proverbs tells us, Solomon writes, the righteous will stumble seven times. But what is it? It's a forward stumbling. It's stumbling forward. Listen, All throughout our life, our whole, every step we take as a Christian, we take from one stumble to the next. Listen, I get it. We stumble, we fall, we fail, we make mistakes, and we fear even. But what God has invited us into is in every stumble, we take a faithful step. In every stumble, we take a faithful step forward. 
we take an extra step we move towards him and we stop being afraid to be seen we stop being afraid to that that our that our stumbles will be made known we'll stop being afraid that our failures and our weaknesses won't uphold us because remember like asaph said he said my flesh and my heart may fail but god is the strength of my heart but God is the confidence at which I live in. But God is that driving force for all of those things. And so for us this morning, my prayer for you and I pray that you would pray this morning. That when the world is crashing around us and pressing in on us, the passions we pursue will prepare us for opposition and for pr- 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 proving. Not only proving those to those around us, but proving within ourselves. So that we can live confidently, live passionately in the truth of what He has for us and the truth of what God has and will do in us. And so the question for us within ourselves as we bow our heads, let's bow our heads this morning and begin to pray and seek after God that we would ask God this this morning. God, first and most importantly, God, help evaluate, help me to evaluate my passions. God, help me to evaluate those things that I elicit value to, that I am committed to, that I am running towards. God, and help me to pursue you. God, help me to be led towards you. God, help me to be driven towards you and your goodness and your love and your mercy for me. God, let me run towards greater things and not settle for lesser things. let us pray this morning that God would give us the confidence to fight through the fear of being seen. That God would give us the confidence to not be afraid for people to see us as Christians, but also that God would not, that we would not be afraid for God, for people to see us as failures at times. People struggling, stumbling through this Christian life. That whatever it is that's robbing us of confidence, that God would begin to remove those things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing. God, help us to break through fear. Help us to break through, Lord, the the snares of the enemy working against us and holding us back. God, give us the confidence to be seen. God, give us the confidence to step into circles of people around us and, and, and to have conversations. Lord, to begin to engage the culture around us, the Lord, first off, let us evaluate our passions. God, reveal to us the passions that are robbing us of the power that you have for us so that we will be prepared for the opposition to come and that we can still be an influence in a culture that resists us and resists the truth. God, we love you. 